What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. This week I interview Academy Award-nominated editor Julian Clark, whose work on District 9 got him critical acclaim. Before we dive into the interview, I'd like to let you know of a slight recording issue that happened on the day. You'll notice after the first question is answered, we shift outside. That was because of issues that occurred at our recording location. I'd also like to talk to you about EditFest New York, which is occurring in June. The American Cinema Editors is teaming up with the Manhattan Edit Workshop to host the New York EditFest. Josh from Manhattan Edit Workshop has a few words for our audience about the upcoming event. Hey, this is Josh from Manhattan Edit Workshop reminding you that American Cinema Editors is bringing EditFest back to New York June 11th and 12th. Meet the editors of Avatar, Precious, Manhattan, Sex and the City, The Wrestler, Pirates of the Caribbean, and many, many more. Check it out and register at editfestny.com. See you there. Thanks to Josh for recording that. Also remember that I myself will be at EditFest New York, and so if you have any questions or you want to grab a pint, send me an email at gordon at artoftheguillotine.com. Now on with part one of my interview with Julian Clark. So the opening 10 minutes of the film is very documentary style of cutting. This follows uh, by a slow transition into a more fiction style of filmmaking. Then the film's ended by a documentary style again. So how did you approach the transitions from documentary to fiction? Yeah, well, I was. we were very worried about, at least I was worried, I don't know if Neil was worried about whether that, that transition would work. Because, you know, you kind of, you generally think that you're going to have essentially a kind of set up a kind of rules to the world of your movie. Um, so, uh, you know, in a movie like Cloverfield, you have, you know, essentially a subjective camera that's motivated throughout the film. Characters talking to it and, you know, it's, you know, so you accept that. And then you watch, a, you know, an action movie like, and this is a cinematic camera that's unmotivated. It's handheld and verite, but it's like an unacknowledged cinematic camera. And you accept that. And then, you know, you have a movie like it's all gone Pete Tong, which is a mockumentary, but the camera is unacknowledged, mm -hmm. except for the interviews. And even though the camera makes no sense that you have this camera following around a character that the character doesn't notice it, it's consistent and you kind of just accept it. So we kind of have like all three in this movie. And so that was kind of a worry about whether, you know, people would kind of go like, hang on, you know, this, this doesn't make any sense. This, that, you know, that they'd be kind of taken out because of this this kind of violation, the sort of change in the kind of the rules of the universe of the movie. But I, I mean, I, I think the reason we got away with it is because we start off with the documentary kind of style in it with the subjective camera, and then we were very slowly, to, we're very slow to introduce the dramatic uh, perspective, the cinematic perspective. It's not just like we suddenly switch from one to the other. It kind of gets leaked in there. Um, so it's, I think, the first time that we go fully cinematic is when uh, Christopher Johnson and his son and the other alien, Paul, kind of in the scrapyard in District 9, kind of salvaging. And then we go back to Vickis and it's back to documentary again. And then same thing when Vickis is at his party celebrating his promotion, it's sort of suddenly it's not, it's so, suddenly it's not a you know, subjective motivated camera anymore. And then we go back to uh, it being a subjective camera when he's in the MNU kind of dungeon. So uh, I think the fact that we were kind of leaking it in there uh, and then kind of going back to documentary and, and the fact that the, the sort of shooting styles are quite similar. They're both kind of, kind of this sort of handheld kind of verite mm -hmm. style. 
meant that it kind of we kind of got away with it. People kind of acclimatized to the the drama, and uh, and so they didn't kind of you know people didn't generally notice when we fin finally like really switched over to full drama in the middle of the movie. So yeah, that I think that was it was instructive in terms of like that you can kind of get away with things. You can break rules and get away with it if you're kind of kind of tactical about it. So how did these two cutting styles help or hinder your editing process? Well, I think uh, the opening kind of documentary stuff, it's very much like setting a kind of tone of like, this is really happening and, and kind of like of an event unfolding like news. And so the kind of editing of that is very much, you know, it's a really kind of an anything goes kind of like just, I guess, authenticity is the kind of really mm -hmm. driving thing there, just like to make it really seem like this is something very real. But it's maybe not like the best style for kind of really getting access to the main character. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, that style really couldn't be motivated as well. Like once Vickers is on the run, it didn't make sense for there to be a camera crew with him. And even if there had been, it really wouldn't necessarily have been the best thing in terms of getting really like a kind of an emotional access for this, to this character. Because he's very much kind of performing for the camera in the earlier kind of points, sort mm -hmm. of puffed up kind of personality. So when we kind of switch the kind of dramatic cinematic style, it's sort of when we kind of see his character kind of being more vulnerable and kind of start to humanize the character. So I kind of think that sort of switched, kind of worked with kind of how we kind of wanted to switch the audience's kind of sympathies more towards the character. I guess like in the opening 10 minutes, you're, you're building a, a very thorough background for the audience. How did you approach cutting this part of the film, especially with such a quick pacing? Yeah, well, it was, it was really hard. We had a huge amount of material and we were, we were still shooting a lot of that stuff even up to the kind of last minute because mm -hmm. we could keep kind of grabbing little extra talking head stuff. And it was uh, this, Neil had really come up with this incredibly nuanced, rich world, sort of this alternate South African reality. And so we wanted to kind of give context and set up to all these things so that the movie would work and so that people could see all this layering that we'd sort of thought through in the movie. But basically when you put in all that detail as well as setting up the character of Vickas, it was just like too much, you know, it would take like, you know, 20, 25 minutes or something mm -hmm. like that. And so you, you could show that we have this rich world, but you know, you'd already be tuned out of the movie because we'd just taken too long to actually get to the main story. So it really just became this sort of slow paring down process of kind of figuring out what was absolutely essential to tell the story and like what you could omit and that people would still accept. Um, so there were, yeah, there were certain things that we like had there that kind of gave extra context to Multinational United and to like the aliens and to Christopher Johnson. And, and we removed these things just because they were an obstacle to kind of get the movie rolling and want to get into the evictions and really getting to like know the character of Vickas. So it was hard. Yeah, um, so yeah, we just had to sort of slowly test things out and remove them and see if we could get away with it, basically. Now you mentioned that there was like a large amount of footage. Um, with so much footage, how did you approach cutting it down for the documentary scenes? And how did this large amount of footage and documentary style change the storyline? Well, I guess in terms of approaching it, um, there's a lot of things I would do differently sort of to do a project like this again, if there is another one. Like, you know, I'd, I would want to get time-coded transcriptions of all the material, especially the documentary interviews and stuff, but we really didn't kind of have the resources to kind of do all that kind of stuff. So I just had a lot of material and not really like a very intricate organizational system in, in place to deal with it. So 
really, I just, at various kind of slower points in the editing process, I just watched and watched this sort of exhaustive amount of material and then just started kind of, without even putting it necessarily into the movie, just kind of making timelines that had kind of selects of stuff that I thought was stronger material and kind of grouping it via kind of like, here's a whole bunch of different characters talking about Vickis's transformation and here's a whole bunch of characters talking about MNU's interest in weapons. And, and so you'd kind of get these tidbits that kind of were, which were strong or kind of interesting or useful and you just kind of have those sort of tucked away so that as you were cutting the main movie you kind of go well you know what we can kind of we can kind of use this here to help out and yeah in some ways that document because the world was so kind of rich with detail that sort of talking head documentary thing was uh, incredibly useful device because in a sort of normal movie you have to kind of embed all this kind of setup and kind of detail into scenes kind of innocuously dropped by characters, mm -hmm. exposition. In this context, we could just go, okay, here's suddenly an expert talking and he feeds you the information you need to know and then out he goes. So it was helpful to tell the story and then it was also kind of a nightmare because of how much we had and, and having to mine through it to kind of, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and reduce it to tell the story. So it was kind of a blessing and a curse. Now, the film was originally based on Alive in Joburg. Uh, did you use this as an influence for your editing or a starting point for your cut? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, uh, of course, it was a reference point, absolutely. And I mean, basically, the style and aesthetic of the movie is very much uh, Neil Blomkamp's. So, you know, kind of me getting into editing it was very much getting into the head of his aesthetic for District 9 and Alive in Joburg, which, you know, uh, especially in the first 20 minutes is this sort of I guess capturing the feel of kind of found footage, you know, mm -hmm. uh, he wanted it to be, you know, you kind of, this movie was edited together from these different sort of bits of things that were taken out of an archive, you know, mm -hmm. part of it's like a, an EPK or something, you know, or a little corporate video being made by MNU and, and part of it is like a documentary being made by, you know, maybe Gray Bradnam mm -hmm. and part of it is security camera footage. So there's all these kind of elements that they, these kind of found elements that are then kind of put together to kind of tell a story like a doc as opposed to kind of, you know, a glossy, high production value kind of blockbuster drama that we're kind of accustomed to. And, and his reference points for the movie were always kind of documentaries and things from YouTube from Iraq and stuff like that. So, you know, yes, Alive in Joburg was an influence, but it was really just kind of getting inside the head of his influences and, 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 and kind of understanding how to like tell the story that way as opposed to kind of trying to emulate other action sci-fi movies. Now, in the short, they talk about electricity and water issues that the aliens are taking from. How come that wasn't, was there any talk of that in the editing room or any? I, I don't know. I mean, that might have been in early drafts of the script. Uh, I'm sure there was many uh, before I was on the scene. But, uh, you know, I, I think what you can say there is is the a lot of the things in the movie, the details, are really kind of this rip from the headlines of South Africa. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of kind of, you know, there's problems there with power outs. Like we had power outs while we were there. So, I mean, that issue being raised in Alive in Joburg is a very kind of real issue mm -hmm. in South Africa some of the time. And in District 9, you know, there's definitely kind of, uh, kind of we're referencing the xenophobic riots there where these people from Zimbabwe and other poor African countries have kind of come there perhaps illegally and are working there and that certain people in South Africa feel like this is kind of a problem economically and causing mm -hmm. hardship in the country and you know then there's been killings and you know shack burnings and stuff and so this kind of attitude to the aliens is definitely kind of informed by that so 
you know, uh, whether or not there was ever a kind of a power or water problem in it, it's like the, the sort of genesis is the same, which is like basically all these kind of very specific South African problems kind of being lifted out and kind of recontextualized in the sort of science fiction context. That's the show for this week. I'd like to thank Julian Clark for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank the Canadian Cinema Editors and Paul Weinstock, as well as my producer, Lauren Woodcock. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.